Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I guess I'll start. Um, it's so nice to see you all here. Um, if you follow uh, what's going on in the book world right now, you know that it's a Megan Abbott moment. <laughs> um, and if you've been reading Megan's work for a long time like I have, um, you'll probably agree with me that it's long overdue. Um, I think she has been a, a groundbreaking writer for, for a long time, and, and I think uh, it's great that the culture is uh, finally catching up to her. Um, and uh, Megan's just going to begin with a reading from her wonderful new book. Yeah, I just, uh, well actually, why don't I just read the prologue to keep it, you know, I'm sure we have so much to talk about, and uh, and then it won't require much, uh, much preliminaries, but really it is a book about um, two women who uh, are, um, when we first meet them, they're high school students, um, and they're both very skilled in science, and uh, Kit, who's the narrator, is sort of um, maybe less motivated, less sure of herself, and she meets this brilliant Diane, who kind of fires her ambition, and uh, and for a brief time, they're, they're friends, um, and then about a dozen years later, they end up in this competitive lab environment with each other, but in between time, um, Diane and his kid confessed to Kit this very dark secret. And that was really the kernel of the book. Um, and uh, now that they're in competition, and Kit sort of has this, knows this secret. Um, and as you can imagine, trouble ensues. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to read the beginning, which sort of sets up a little bit, the first page and a half, sets up the relationship between the two women. And this is a prologue, which Elmore Leonard says you should never have. Um, <laughs> I have broken all of Elmore Leonard's rules. But by the way, so is Elmore Leonard. But you, skipped, you did skip the boring part. I did. I tried to. I tried to. Uh, and I don't talk about the weather, so which is also one of his rules. Um, okay. I guess I always knew in some subterranean way Diane and I would end up back together. We are bound ankle to ankle, a monstrous three-legged race, accidental accomplices, wary conspirators, or Siamese twins fused in some hidden place. It's that powerful, that thing we share, a murky history, its narrative near impenetrable. We keep telling it to ourselves, noting its twists and turns, trying to make sense of it, and hiding it from everyone else. Sometimes it feels like Diane was a corner of myself, broken off and left to roam my body, floating through my blood. On occasional nights, stumbling to the bathroom after a bad dream, a Diane dream, I avoid the mirror, averting my eyes, leaving the light off, some primitive part of my half-asleep brain certain that if I looked, she might be there. Cover your mirrors after dark, my great-grandma used to say, or they trap the dreamer's wandering soul. So even though I haven't seen her in a dozen years, it isn't truly a surprise when Diane appears at the Severin Lab, my workplace, the building in which I spend most of my waking life. Of all the labs in all the world, she had to walk into mine, <laughs> and everything begins again. The strangest part is how little we actually know about each other. Not our birthdays, our favorite songs, who made our hearts beat faster and didn't. 
We were friends, Diane, if Diane was friends with anyone, but only for a few months and long ago. But we do know the one thing no one else in the world knows about the other, the only important thing. That's ominous up in the beginning. Um, I'm creeped out. Um, uh, but it is uh, in large part about the, those weird friendships between women that aren't exactly friendships. And I think the cultural term is now frenemies, which you know kind of rubs me the wrong way. Uh, it doesn't feel exactly true. but um, And I think men have these too, but a uh, person in your life who um, is that they're at a pivotal moment and pushes you in one direction or the other, so you kind of owe them something. Um, but, but that's a very common thing in your book, is these intense friend pairs. And I don't know if I can think of a male writer who returns again and again to this idea of like a kind of a all-devouring friendship. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if, it, I, I mean, I, I'm going to, like, huge gender generalization here, but uh, that's, that's our gonna, moment. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the world we live in now. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that, that men, it, like, uh, uh, competition is expected and open, but I feel like women, when they compete, often has to be a little underground, um, a little subterranean. Um, women aren't, aren't supposed to, I mean, I was writing this book during the election, the campaign, and I was sort of aware about what it means for for women to be openly express their ambition and it was sort of on my mind and so I was thinking about how women often when they're competing have to make it underground and in that case everything you push underground becomes more intense and fraught because you're hiding it whereas guys could you know play you know go out on the football field or play pinball together people don't play pinball anymore do they uh, play play playstation together or like there's sort of ways that men are like like sanctioned ways for men to compete but maybe there is less so for women yeah i think and maybe there's more of a pack mentality with men and, yeah. and once people figure out who the alpha is, then they kind of can relax. Right? <laughs> oh yeah. Whereas for you know, you you are really interested in these these pairs. Yeah, you know? right. And also, I mean, I guess sort of the in literature, there's always the I'm interested in doubles. I suppose you can't read a lot of literature without finding doubles, and in most books, it's sort of even in works like Gatsby or, um, or uh, Catcher in the Rye, or there's always sort of characters that seem to be split off from the main character that reflect sort of their, their darker sides, and I've always been interested in that. And the people that we're drawn to because they do the things that we're afraid to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something you, you come to again and again. So here's what I want to ask, because it's such a, an interesting moment, right? It, it feels like a, a paradigm has shifted in, in the culture, and um, you know, the patriarchy does seem to be, you know, cracking a, a little bit. Um, and in some ways, I think your books have a very complex relation to all this, and it's one of the reasons maybe why it's taken some time for, I think, people to sort of see them in, in the context. Because you take something like The Handmaid's Tale, right, which is a, a dystopian story, and, and and some people will watch it and go like, oh, that that looks like the world. And and I'll say, well, I don't know. It doesn't really look like this world to me. Um, I can understand, like, some people would like to make it that world, but um, actually we live in this really complicated world. It's like a moment of unprecedented female strength, but also a moment in which, you know, um, there's also a real sense of women's vulnerability, and I think your work um, 
kind of mixes those things together in a way that can be maybe politically challenging. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's hard to sort of see what your relationship is to some of these cultural narratives. Right. No, I, I've um, I always surprised because I, and, I, and I bet you feel the same way, Tom, that I don't bring my explicitly bring ideology to the book. I'm just writing the book, but it can, you know, inevitably people will find it. But um, I think that there, I was talking to, I did this interview with Gillian Flynn where we talked about this, where we, we both face criticism. If you have women in your books doing bad things, is it not feminist? And I thought about that a, a lot, um, about what it means to show that these are complicated issues that, um, I mean, this book deals a lot with complicity, which is something we're talking about a lot now, almost ceaselessly. And uh, um, I guess that messy area is is where I'm interested in. But I wouldn't really want to put my books under my own ideological test because I don't know if it would succeed. I don't know if I would I would believe in them because they're, you know, fiction is much murkier than our ideology. No, I was just about to use the word murky. <laughs> you know, that's like the interesting part, the part that we don't fully understand. But I will say you are somebody who writes about, uh, you know, female gymnasts, these cheerleaders yeah. who are amazing athletes. You know, you're kind of celebrating women's bodies and their athletic power, but then there are these uh, other books that, that in a sense, like, you know, The Fever, yeah. which is about, well, you, you describe what, what it's about, because yeah. it, I think it, it it definitely enters this realm of, um, what's, what's the right word, where, where, you know, these girls are maybe making each other sick in right. some sense, or the culture is making yeah, them sick. Right, you know? right. No, I think that's right, uh, and it, it comes up in this book too. I guess I'm always interested in the, um, the the sort of cultural notion of the female bodies are out of control and dangerous, and there's something about the female body that's almost pathological, um, and uh, and that that's something I always go back to, um, and both because it's a sort of weird cultural myth that sort of goes back to ideas of the floating womb and real hysteria where the idea of hysteria came from that women are not not like us and that there's some there's something kind of monstrous about the woman and uh it came up in writing this too as i was um the this the scientific thing they're studying is premenstrual dysphoric disorder which is this extreme pms which affects depending on the stats three to eight percent of women which is a lot of women um but rarely talked about and I was, when I was writing this, um, there was that moment in um, one of the early debates where uh, Megyn Kelly was interviewing, um, you know, that guy, and uh, <laughs> and um, and he he you know, made reference to uh, what seems to be a bleeding out of her eyes, bleeding out of her, you know, what seems to be some reference to her her menstrual cycle, and there was a little later he did a similar thing with Hillary, and it was so weird that that was still happening. These kind of ancient ideas that the female there's something something uh, weird and witchy and primitive about the female body. Uh, but at the same time, there kind of is because we've been placed in that category. So we, we kind of have to hide it. We, you know, women are supposed to sort of hide these things. Right, and, and you've been writing about girls who do that, right? Who are, uh, whose self-control and whose denial of their bodies is, right. um, you know, 
both very impressive and, and frightening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You had said, uh, but I, I did not realize this till. But when we were talking, I think about about this book that I write a lot about female perfectionists, and I had not realized that till you said it. But that's very true. I think that they, there can be no mistake or excess for for women who want to achieve in some ways, at least in the world of my books, that, that you can, there's no room for mistakes. Um, you have to do everything right, which which is also, I think, a, a position for any minority figure, right? That there's there's only one slot for you, so you better not slip up. Yeah. And I think to get back to Give Me Your Hand, it, it uh, kind of combines these two things, right? Because you have these yeah. perfectionist, competitive scientists, but what they're studying is... Yeah. you know, the opposite, you know, these, these dark physical forces that will, you know, undermine them and, and, you know, create a fatal weakness. Right, right, right. It is, you know, um, it is a real thing, um, this, this PMDD as they call it, and it is, uh, you know, that notion that women shouldn't be in charge of things because they're too, they shouldn't have the red telephone because they're too emotional, and what if they have their period and they, um, you know, as opposed to the handling of foreign relations we have now, which is so, <laughs> so smooth and streamlined. That's right. Yeah. We have no, yeah. Um, and, and that, I mean, that that was always very interesting to me in the campaign too. That the one who seemed very emotional and playing on people's emotions most was the man, and uh, and then the woman was accused of having no feeling and being this kind of automaton. And it's just so weird to see that all unfold, and that kind of worked its way into the book, but. These, the women, you know, Kit and Diane, there's no room for error with them, and they are meticulous and almost robotic about getting things right, but the thing they're studying is when you can't control any of this, because, you're, you, you, you know, your hormones um, have, have seized the reins, so to speak, and that's all going on at once, is, is sort of the mess, the mess at the center of the book. Mm -hmm. I was so struck when, when I got this book, um, because I, for some reason, the choice of the main characters being signed. I'm like the, yeah. the idiot who doesn't get the joke of like, I can't operate on this child, he's my son. You know, the, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the old joke, like right. the doctor is a woman. Yes, you know, right. like, I'm, like, I'm like, oh, women scientists, I like, did not see this coming for yeah. some reason because I'm an idiot. Um, I didn't see it coming but, either. So. <laughs> I think I just had gotten used to this idea of like high school girls, athletes, yep. um, people involved in feats of real self-control. In this case, it's sort of intellectual self-control, but just yeah. the competition of the lab is so, um, you know, fascinatingly described. And I just wondered, like, what brought you to, yeah. to this? Yeah, I, I mean, I would have had them be runners were something athletic, honestly, if I had had my brothers, I'm fa I have no athletic ability, so I always I tend to write about athletes a lot, because I'm fascinated by that they actually have control over their bodies, and, and uh, feel like they can actually move them in the ways they want, which I never <laughs> feel like, um, but I thought I had done that, I'm sure you think of this, well I've done this before, I need to do this thing, and so I thought what would be really challenging would be the life of the mind, and how you do that physical, you know, sports are so great to describe. They're they're so visual, and you can paint them in a book. And this seems so much harder. Uh, so I somehow that seemed like a great idea until I actually realized that I know nothing about science at all. Um, so much so that my my first conversations, I interviewed a few female scientists. 
because uh, I was interested in how how minor, much a minority still female scientists are, but I actually asked the question, uh, this is how basic my questions were at the beginning. You're standing at the lab bench. What is it that you're actually doing? <laughs> I literally had no idea what they did in the lab, you know. And, and so I had some very patient women explain to me so much about what the daily work was. But what came out so much was the, this hot house environment that the lab was like, which that's when I knew I had my hook because I do love to write about hot houses and cloistered environments uh, and where people, where you see people sort of. Um, at their purest and their ugliest in some ways. So that, that, and the notion that they always were the only woman in the lab and what that meant to them. Um, and so that, that was sort of how I realized that there was going to be a book in there, that this was interesting. And have you heard from uh, scientists? I have. And they, like, I'm sure the ones who are, ang are annoyed and involved in the mistakes have not contacted me yet, but so far the people who have. No, they'll, heard, they'll get there. Yeah, they'll get there. But it takes, they, they'll find it. Um, but I have heard from a lot of people who suffer from PMDD, um, which is interesting um, because um, uh, I think they had had a. Uh, uh, there was an early uh, article that sort of mis slightly misrepresented the way I portrayed it in the book, and then I heard from them all. But then I promised them that if they read the book, that it would be fair, and so um, hopefully not quite. Because I, I do treat it very seriously, and uh, it is one of those, like, like a lot of female maladies, uh, was until about a year ago was still dismissed as not a real thing. Uh, until they actually, a year while I was writing the book, they found the hard science to prove that it was real, um, which was exciting. So when you started the book, you were writing about a, a syndrome that was not necessarily recognized. Right. I mean, most biologists and so forth believed it was, but there was a larger belief that not only that it wasn't true, but that it was anti-feminist to even support it because it, it endorsed this idea that women are, that women's feelings are pathological or, uh, um, and they can't control them. But then they actually proved that women who have it, it is about how they're molecular apparatus responds to hormones, so if they turned off progesterone, estrogen, the symptoms went away. So they, there's actually a real real hardwired thing that the women suffer from, So, which I think has been very gratifying to women who kept being told that they were just having, you know, that time of the month, and, you know, but, but it is, as opposed to PMS, which is bad, this is actually debilitating, like you can't go to work, you can't stop crying, you uh, have trouble with your, if your mother, you know, you, know you're, you can't be around your children because you're so upset, and so it actually, that that's one of the criteria that it's actually debilitating, so. Um, you, you mentioned before they're the only women in the lab, but actually when you read the book, yeah. in some sense, they're the, the only people in the lab, and, and the boss, Dr. Severin, yeah. is also a very striking and powerful female figure. And I, I notice this is a pattern like when I think about your books. Yeah. Um, men sort of recede. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a, it really is a world where women only see women in, in some sense. I mean, they're, they're definitely yeah. important male figures, but I just wondered about that landscape, because it it's a feature when I think of your books as a whole. Yeah, yeah, it is strange, because I, you know, I started out writing these sort of hard-boiled crime novels, these sort of noir historical, and it really was because I wanted to enter this world of men, um, but then my, 
my books in large part push them to the sidelines, but I, I, it's sort of in some ways, I guess it's flipping the script, though I never intended this way, that women in those books are often the sideline, the books I love are the sideline characters, or very powerful, but a femme fatale, um, who's very powerful, but isn't quite a fully full person. Um, and and uh, so I, I was, and also I was interested in how those Classic noir, Chandler, Hammett, Kane, they're a lot about how male power operates. And I was really interested in seeing how female power operates. And what was fascinating first was how different it was, and then what was more fascinating is how it's the same. That power is power. And uh, um, there's always only so much room at the top. And that, um, that, that in some ways, that this, is, this is less about gender and more about um, more about power itself and, and the way it operates, which is which is interesting mm. to me. Right, which takes us to another murky place. Yes, right? yes, yes, because exactly. It, it, it's hard to have a simple narrative, except to say right. that to recognize power where it exists and the injustices that come out of it. Right, and what what you know what women owe each other was something that I hadn't intended. I had no idea it would become something we're talking about so much now, but. You know, women who have a position of power, will they choose to bring up other women or will they want to hold their slot as the only woman and, and you know, be the, the girl in the old boys network was something I was interested in. And now is something, as, as we're all doing this analysis of our pasts and all our relationships with the opposite sex and when we did or did not do the right thing or told the right Are thing to the right that? person. I don't know why. <laughs> Is anybody else? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, just sort of this, yeah, I don't like to do it, but it is interesting to think about, uh, especially if you've operated in male worlds. Not. I never had female mentors. I always had male mentors because crime fiction that was just so much more available to me. So and, and, and was that complicated? Uh, it, what now it is. I mean, it's a um, you know I I fell in love with crime fiction because of James Elroy and Raymond Chandler and um, and Hammett and Mickey Spillane and Ross McDonald and uh, um, and uh, it you know. Those were the books, so I, you know, it is. It, I, I do think about that a lot. About um, what I didn't want. What really, though, some people have have sort of tried to say that I did this with those books, that I kind of subverted them. But I didn't. I just wanted in. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to be in them. And how did you deal with that? When I mean, you're reading it. Did that sexism seem like? ancient and quaint that they were describing and different from the world you were in? Like, how did you distance yourself from it and say, I, yeah. uh, you know, Mickey Spillane, for right. example. Right, I mean, that's the one where there's no missing it, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, because there's also, it's very racist and very homophobic and very, uh, uh, but it, it was like in a cartoon in the in a, in a way. Um, so it was, and, that, and I love—I actually really love reading those books, but I never wanted to write those books. Um, I, but I did really want to write the um, Chandler book. Like those were the books that were and Kane uh, were both so um, moving to me, and and uh, I didn't really. I mean, I wrote a whole dissertation about masculinity in those books, um, but I, I, it was never a problem for me. To me, interrogating masculinity is just as important as, make, as making room for femininity. So how old were you when you became a, a, a fan of hard crime? I'd say uh, I, the movie's very young. 
10, 11, 12, uh, 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 really like gangster movies were where it all started for me. And I, I wanted to be Jimmy Cagney. And I wanted to push the grapefruit and make Clark's face. <laughs> I really did. Um, um, terrible child. Uh, but, uh, it, but I didn't come to the books. I, I discovered Elroy first and then uh, and then it really wasn't until college and graduate school that I found uh, Chandler and Kane and all those guys. Was that unusual? Because in my experience, it's usually a, it's like a, almost like rock music or says the world where like guys tended to occupy those spaces. Yeah, well, it was that moment when um, I guess the neo noir moment of the ninety eighties, uh, early nineties, where there were a lot of movies like The Grifters or After Dark, My Sweet, and they were sort of re visiting that and I became intrigued but I, I really had no idea um, when I first read Chandler what I was going into because the movies are quite different. The books are weirder and stranger and uh, and um, sort of beautiful and haunting and uh, I think um, and I think in some ways very feminine um, to use a cliche you know um, because they are um, they're not Spillane, they're not action, they're not, you know, they are about um, the self, psychology, loss, those things. Cool. Well, um, I think we should open up to, to the audience, because I'm sure they have a lot that they'd like to ask. And questions for Tom, too. <laughs> All right, so both of, you have written, both of you have written for television now for a little bit, Tom, you've written for movies, too. Uh, just the process of doing that has that in any way affected when you're when you go back to prose? It, how how has that influenced it? You should start. Uh, you know, for me, I think it's actually made me more appreciative of the things I can do as as a novelist. Meaning, get in the heads of characters, um, move around in time. You know, there there are certain um, limitations when you're writing for for the screen um, and so rather than have the two things bleed into each other I found that it's been really nice to see them as as entirely separate activities and, and I do feel like even my language loosened up as a novelist because early on I think I did have a kind of a cinematic style you know um, very minimalist and I think um, now that I sort of am able to do that in, in screenwriting my novel writing has actually loosened up a little bit yeah, they do. They feel so separate in some ways. I'm more aware of it just in the last few years. Uh, I'm aware more of the architecture that is involved in TV that's not novels. I mean, you kind of create the architecture and the revision of a novel, but it uh, you start with the architecture. It seems in TV, uh, uh, but you do have this freedom, and it's all you, and you can. It's very intimate. The novel is so intimate. You can be in the reader's ear in a way that you just you just can't um, with TV. On the other hand, with TV you have these actors that all of a sudden bring it to life. Like the stuff that you could spend like 10 pages trying to convey this thing that a great actor can convey in a single look. So they, so they do feel very separate in that way. Um, and I mean, I think the only impact it's maybe had is that, um, and this kind of thing comes more from writing crime fiction is that um, I, I'm aware of pace problems in my first draft in novels more since writing for TV because TV is so much about every scene has to do like four things or it shouldn't be there. Um, and I'm not going to do that to my novels, but often I don't see that into the second draft where things are slow. Or, well, that, you know. that, that's kind of amazing to hear because I always feel like 
your books are are paced almost breathlessly. You know, I feel like even just as soon as I start reading what you just read yeah. earlier. So maybe you're just very um, hypersensitive about like, yeah, it. Yeah, I cut a lot out. I cut out at least half the book uh, in the second draft, which is a painful process. <laughs> yeah. You don't know any other way to do it. And uh, uh, I mean, maybe that'll happen last now that I know it. But I don't think it will because I'm always figuring out the characters in the first draft. Um, and I don't really know who they are. Diane, in particular, this book is sort of a cipher. Uh, and uh, at a certain point, I fig figured her out. Well, mostly I just liked her. I started to like her. I always had this thing where I, I uh, start out with a likable protagonist and an unlikable, darker character. And then I, I, I like now I call it the Deadwood phenomenon, where they flip. The characters flip. Like I call it the Swearingen effect is maybe the I'd like to coin that term where watch out for the good guy and uh, the bad guy is the one who's gonna save you at the end. So, so we do learn from T V. <laughs> Um, I pretty hard for me to do them at the same time, I must say. Yes, especially, um, I, I did actually write a good part of Mrs. Fletcher while I was working on The Leftovers, because I had a very strange setup where I'd come out here for two weeks and be in the room, and then I'd go home for two weeks, and I you know, really was trying to divide my mind. But that was only because the book was up and running. Right now, I'm, I'm working on a TV adaptation of Mrs. Fletcher, and I haven't started a new book, and, and that's just to start a book, I just feel like I need to clear the decks for some, however long it takes, really. Yeah, because you have to, with a novel, you have to stay in it, too, for sustained periods of time, and uh, once you're midway through, you don't need that as much, but that beginning stage, if you're not in the tunnel with it for a while, it's very hard to take off, to make some metaphor. <laughs> I agree, it's actually difficult for me to think of how to write an original screenplay. Because yeah. I usually I'm adapting my own work, but I've spent, you know, years kind of immersed in that world yeah. and, and, you know, building it sentence by sentence and, and so I feel like I know it. But the few times I've tried to write original screenplays, it's just like I, I don't know this world. I right. haven't lived in it for, you know Right. A long yeah. Time. Yeah, it's easier to drop stuff out and add things to something that's already, yeah, then I don't know, that seems terrifying to me, original, original screenplays. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you something more specific, but Mike might have said, maybe you shouldn't ask that because some people haven't read the book and we're giving away some of the plot with the questions. Is it a spoiler? <laughs> okay. 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 You can ask me after. I wouldn't want this known, but you know, I think this is. Uh, I think this is your best book. I Thank you. All. I think it's just so wonderful and complex because this whole topic of how uh, you know, once we diagnose that we might have more even cramps that, right. that we might be weak you know, at a time of the month is that we're, we're not as strong as men. We have to have special consideration or in gym class, you know, I need a modifier today, you know. Right, I can't uh, swim today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 when you admit this kind of weakness, 
know, that's what's going through all of your books to what extent, but it seems that Diane wants to have something wrong with her. She wants to have this psychosis so she can deal with it, get rid of it, and not be crazy in any other way. So if she only has this psychosis and deals with it, then she'll only be Right, well, yeah, 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 I mean, you mean, she'll be normal, right, the other way. right, yeah, I mean, it was not quite, so the question is about the character of Diane, who's sort of struggling to figure herself out through most of the book, and I was trying to figure her out, too, but I think it was a lot about the mind and the body, which is something I'm sort of fast, the connection between the two and the ways they don't connect at all, which is something of the fever, I think, too, and, um, I am very interested in that the notion and where you start which is the notion that if you're, if you're a woman in a competitive environment there can be you have no room for weakness and I think that's true for any minority person where in those situations and one of the things I mean one of the things that did come from my experience uh, is that when you're the only woman um, when you're the only woman in the lab and this is not just about women but being about the only something in a lab. Um, you, uh, the way you receive praise often, and I think most women will recognize this, is you're such a hard worker. You're a good worker bee. You work so hard, and which is really, really the most passive-aggressive thing you could say to a woman. And I had this discussion, I said this the other night, and a couple of men I know were wonderful men, they're like, why would that not be a compliment? I'd love someone to tell me I'm a hard worker. And I wouldn't just say, they would never tell you that. By the way, you're not. You don't have to be. <laughs> um, so it's this company because of course you have to be a harder worker if you're a woman, but also that's a diminishing way. Rather than saying you're so talented or you're so good at this, you work so hard. That was my favorite line in your book were when uh, they were, I'm not getting anything. <laughs> Everyone's covering yeah, their ears. <laughs> that, that, um, when uh, the, their mentor says to them, right. you're not getting this because you're you yes. work hard. You're not yes. getting it because of this and that. You're getting it because you're talented and intelligent. Right. And uh, I'm a college professor, and when I was teaching college, uh, some, one of the professors of sociology did a study of women, yes. of letters of recommendation, and found out that the women were praised for working hard, being neat, and uh, doing work on time. And the men were praised for being brilliant and intelligent and intellectual when they had the same record. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we are praised for being the being the, the things that we should be anyway. Yeah, no, and I think Not that we, women do that to other women, and I, it's really, it's really baked in. And, and when when I was writing this, I was aware, of, and I even think one of the Dr. Severn, the mentor, even says this, that the women should need to stop saying just, which is something I do yeah. in virtually every email I've ever written. I'm just asking if, just can you pay me the money you owe me, or just, you know, whatever it is. And I always like, exclamation mark, thanks, you know, on the way the women, uh, and I do all this stuff, so I, I get it. There's even, I think there's even an app now to, for, to try to take that out of your email, uh, but I can't do it. I feel like everyone who knows me would be horrified. If, think I was really mad at them because I'm <laughs> so serious and there's no just. <laughs> it's all gendered. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to do like a callback to the, the 
song is you. Oh, thank you. Uh, which I thought was like an amazing. Thank you. But I think it's great that you're being recognized as a female writer, but I think you're also just a really good writer. And um, I, I, what I was wondering when I read that, what I, what I was wondering when I read that book, because I've read a lot of crime books, was how did you get into them? Because you had to do research for sure, like a lot of research, and but you also had to put yourself because the, the guy you wrote that book was like my stepfather. I mean, exactly. Sorry for you because <laughs> I mean, yeah. so many yeah. so many men from like that generation yeah. with that way of thinking. Yeah. I'm wondering what like what type of preparation did you get to make sure because even like if there is racism, if there is any of that stuff that we're talking about, is presented in the book without any judgment. Yeah. Which yeah. I find so much well, more effective. You. you know, and I'm just wondering how you Kind of got into the book like that. Yeah, that, so that's my second book, and it's set in the in the. It's it's very inspired by James Alroy, and it, it's about a Hollywood publicist who's um, hail Caesar. They stole it from me, by the way. Uh, but it's about a Hollywood publicist who has to cover up some stuff, and it's uh, uh, and the main character. It's not first person, but the main character is this sort of sleazy, handsome Hollywood publicist, and. And it really, um, I, oh, I, I always, I, and I think that, Tom, you're the same way, I never judge my characters at all. I always looking to find their reasons, and uh, um, no matter what they do, I always approach them from a place of, um, of that there's something there. And so what's the old rules of the game line from the rules of the game? Everyone has their reasons, which uh, I really do believe. Um, and that book in particular, um, I just like those guys. It's a problem in my personal life, but I, I think he's, you know, I just always like those guys in movies. I like Ralph Meeker. I like, you know, I like the, uh, and I always thought that they um, deserve to um, be treated uh, with consideration and care. Um, so it does come from a natural place. Um, so maybe that's that's why it were. I, I really, um, I really wanted um, the reader to feel for him even though he was a bad guy and I think that's the noir like that's the sort of beauty of noir to me um, uh, oh and I get carry that into the other books that um, that um, this is not a place of judgment and and noir is about primal urges that we all have we can pretend we don't have them but really there's only like four feelings right there's desire greed revenge that might be it. <laughs> I mean, you know, and so, you know, I mean, once you get down to that, there is no gender. There's just, you may have different success with it based on your gender, but we all have those feelings. I feel like there's one more. <laughs> regret. Regret, regret, of course, the greatest of all noir. Yes, yes. That's the one, I mean, it's, it's very Freudian that I forgot that one. It's the one I live with the most. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, I got a question. Yeah. Uh, Megan and Tom, what's your day like? Uh, how is it structured when you're actually writing a novel? What take us through your day a little bit of how the discipline of writing looks like? Uh, you know, when when I was a college student, I, I loved Gabriel Garcia Marquez above all all writers, and I remember reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez explain his writing day. He said, "Well, I." 
Um, I get up and I write from eight till about noon, and then I go spend the day on the beach. And, and I thought, oh, that sounds like a good job. Um, and I, I, I don't ever spend a day on the beach, but um, you know, I think this idea that, that I have maybe you know four or five hours in me, and so uh, to, to concentrate at the level I might need to actually get some writing done. So I, it's usually from about ten to three for me. But early in a book, I may because I don't know what I'm doing. I may just have an hour or two, and I don't um, you know punish myself with that. If so, basically, I, I take it easy. Is, um, and I always exercise after I, I write because it just it's the only way I kind of get myself back into. So it's a very routine life, and I think you'll find that from most most novelists. There are a few people like Hammett would just lock himself in a room and write a novel in six weeks. But most writers I know are real creatures yeah. of habit. Yeah, and he famously suffered from writer's block for like 30 years. So I, I, you know, I think there's only so long you can sustain that. I think routine is everything. And um, mine is messier, but I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have kids or I don't have a personal life. I mean, mostly I write all day. And, uh, uh, but I don't really, I probably write less than you do in a given day. But I, I, I really like, I have to be locked at the computer, which is very, um, I have to stay the book in my, like all day, uh, which sounds like you do in those hours, but I sort of spread it out. Um, and I'll go for walks to sort of work out plot problems. Um, but yeah, I have to have to have like a routine about it, and I have to stick to it even if I don't want to. Um, and then at, at the end, instead of working out, I have a cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that did too. Yeah, yeah, right. I can go after. <laughs> but I remember reading once that Joan Didion always had a cocktail after she she wrote, and she would read through her pages. And I, I don't read through my pages, but I do have the cocktail. <laughs> well, I, I I will say this: when I know that I'm actually in a book. Um, what starts happening is I will wake myself up yeah. at night and yeah. you know make sure that I write down whatever comes to it because that will almost always go straight straight into the book and so I feel like there's this long period of working to get to that place where my brain is actually working without me willing it to work and that's that's you know to me all that's when the all those miserable hours have paid off yeah. because you know you're, you're just in it, in it. yeah. Yep. Has yeah. the internet made it harder, or you're good at unplugging? You are not on there. I, I basically write always about people who just have decided to give in to their weakness because it's so much easier than fighting. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's and, and to me that's like that's I, you know I read about people who are going like I am going to like cut myself off from the internet and just it seems like all that anxiety about it. It's just like no, just check your email a hundred times a day, you know. Just, just do that. I don't know what I did before. I mean, I probably <laughs> looked out the window, but it, it's just such, it's such a terrible habit. But I have embraced my terrible habits. Saying that, I mean, I, I tell myself that. I mean, it is true that I, you know, there are. I have found fascinating things on the internet that have gone to the books. So that's what I always tell myself. Maybe I'm going to find something that will inspire me, and I will, um, you know, and that, you know, maybe one out of. 4,000 times I go on the internet that happens, but 
um, it's a bad thing for writers. There's no doubt about it. But we would have found other things, you know. I mean, writers used to, used to drink more, um, you know, and they used to, you know, take methamphetamines. And uh, uh, so I think you have to have something, um, and that seems less harmless than others. Yeah, oddly, the one place that I can avoid the internet is a writer's room. Yeah. You know, yeah. there is something about just going in this room with a bunch of other people and. You know, there, again, there's a lot of messing around and a lot of wasted time, but, but for the most part, phones and devices are, are off and you're there, you know, collectively just saying, we're on this. And there is a level of concentration that um, is unusual because when I'm alone now, I'm just constantly distracted. Yeah, yeah. I always get at the end of the writer's room day like a migraine though from all that interaction which is so, so different from the novelist where you cannot speak all day to anyone. But I still have a headache. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> another question? Um, I teach reading and writing to uh, children and they uh, have a tendency to say that they are done their first draft. How many times do you revise? And I, I said, I'm going to tell them. So, <laughs> you're on the spot right now. But uh, they do need to understand that if, uh, a work requires more than one like editor revision. And so can you talk a little bit about your revising process? Yeah, I revise a lot. Do you, do you tell them? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you should tell them that they should spend 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so much so that the first hundred pages uh, are almost so overworked that I throw out a lot of it, you know, because uh, you keep going back there, you know. Often, do you do this time where you, you, the first part of it, you've just revisited in some ways too many times, so it just it's, it's too smooth and, and it's meaningless in some ways. Yeah, but I always, it's probably a, a habit that's become a fault, which is, I do write from beginning to Me end. Too. I don't start I don't, chapter two till no. I have a chapter one that's yeah. usable. And no, that's crazy to do. Because I, you know, I've, I've had writing teachers yeah. who say just write, just just write that first draft, just blurt it out, and then you can see where you're going, and then you go back and revise. And it made a lot of sense to me, and I've never been able to. No, maybe for one's first book where you don't really know how to build a plot yet, but once you do, uh, I just couldn't keep it in my head. With a crime novel, I couldn't keep it yeah. in my head if I didn't do it that way. There was a question back here. Oh, it's actually a little related. How much do you outline when it comes to the novels? Uh, Never. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of have a three act, but that, that suggests that I knew what the acts were, but I, I know what's going to happen in the middle, and I know what's going to happen at the end. So, sort of from watching movies growing up. I. I but, but that, but it can change too, and the middle is always the hardest for me. Yeah, I, I do it differently. I never know the end. Really? Yeah. Really? And I try to keep the question as open I like as that. I can for as, as long as I can, um, till you know, till I have to make a choice, until the choice is is clear to me. So um, that does create a lot of anxiety yeah. in me. Um, <laughs> Take it, Anakin, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, with crime novel, that would be much harder. Now, I do know people who do it. I, yeah. My first people say, you know, we did it until I 
didn't know who did it. I didn't know who did it. Huh? That's it more fun. It just became obvious. Yeah. And then you go back and make it work. Right, you do, right, right. It was Attica Locke, the great crime novelist, uh, second row there. Um, that makes me feel better, because I have changed the number of times. I didn't change the ending of this, but I did, uh, there was another death that I hadn't intended, that I added in the month after the election. <laughs> <laughs> So you have to be free. You have to allow things some level of freedom. And I think outlining is, in some ways, it's it just gives you the sense that you know where you're going. But inevitably, you're going to veer from it. I think, and, you know. Yeah, and if you made an outline and actually produced a book that mirrored that outline, I probably wouldn't want to read it. <laughs> you one more question, anybody? Yes. You guys need to read about like ten books. How many books have you started? Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's so personal. <laughs> I, I only I only have one one dead one. I, I think I have six or seven. I have a lot. I mean, I have like sixty pages. Like, how long would you consider a beginning? <laughs> six. Yeah, maybe uh, six, maybe. <laughs> I have a lot. I don't know. I, I don't know if I... I have trouble getting in the... Um, I also have a very opinionated agent, and, that, and that's part of it. And I, uh, But uh, um, I don't know if it's taking off until about 60 or 70 pages. And sometimes I feel like it's taking off, but... Um, other people don't. <laughs> then I think maybe I need to go back. So my novel, The End of Everything, is one of my novels. And I started that when I was 22. And I, I 13 years later, went back to it and finished it. So and that, that's the thing that gives me hope. None of the other five <laughs> I've gone back to. But um, it's very disappointing to let go. But it's also sort of a relief when you let it go. But that's so interesting, because I always thought of that as this book that uh, changed your identity for me. It was like, oh, yeah. this is like the, mm -hmm. the yeah. Megan Abbott right. that most people know starts mm -hmm. there, but it's yeah. so interesting to it's know that, yeah. it was, that, 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 I, that part of you was sort of always there and you just right. couldn't, I don't know what, I, I couldn't or didn't. Yeah, know. well I think at that time I didn't know, I hadn't read all this crime fiction, I didn't know how to build a plot, so it sort of, I abandoned it because I didn't know how to create a plot. And then once I wrote some crime novel, I mean that's the thing that will, you can't do a crime novel without plot, you know. Um, I, I love a lot of novels that don't have plots, but you can't do it in crime novel. Um, even if the plot is personality or character, it's, yeah. So I, I think that's why I, I sort of knew that I could map this, this sort of procedural element onto it and give it a structure. Even though that's the least interesting element to me always. <laughs> but like since then you haven't done a period novel, right? No, no, only short stories, but I hope to again one day. Have you ever thought about doing one? Uh, no. <laughs> you got like the 1970s or yeah. something, yeah, you know, because you, you know. Yeah, yeah that yeah. I can do. Yeah, yeah okay. So that's not really... It, well, I did an 80s novel they told me was historical, so <laughs> that made me, that aged me. I, I, can, I mean, my first book was called Stories of the 70s. Yeah. It was so. like a up to the minute at that point. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you all so much.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.